Join me today as we talk to Sir Ken Robinson. That's right, TED Talk famed speaker, thought leader, and evangelist for global education. He pulls back the curtain on what we should be doing, what we haven't been doing correctly, and ways to inspire us in the future. Well, Sir Ken, it's nice to spend some time with you. I know we talked off air about uh, meeting a few years ago at the AACD conference and, and speaking there amongst um, educators from around the country and the world. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is the role that you and others like Sugata Mitra, who we also discussed as well, play in the, I guess, the next chapter of education. Have you given much thought to the role, motivation, and the power of the the audible uh, exchange amongst those in education and helping them to move forward and take action in areas that we all, I think, so desperately want to see in global education? Well, I... I... I'm asked a lot, as you know, to talk to uh, groups of educators around America and around the world. And, uh, and it's something I've done for a very long time. Um, I, I was saying in a, a book I published a year ago called Creative Schools that a lot of people know the work I do through the talks I've given at TED. And I've, I mean, I'm absolutely delighted at the impact of those talks because they've clearly spread far and wide. I think one of the reasons is that, and I, I hear it a lot from, from teachers that I work with, is that they feel in some ways that the things I've, I say in those talks and the books that I've written uh, that are associated with them, that I'm articulating in some way what they have always felt and believed. So I think that's one role of being in the sort of position that I find myself in and, and those cigar does as well, that we're able to articulate values and purposes in education that in my experience most educators feel very deeply um, and the, the second is and so I think that's inherently encouraging to people I mean I often have people saying to me that that when they've seen the talks I've done or they've read, read the things I've written that it, it helps them to feel they're not alone in what they're trying to get done in education because you know there's lots of wonderful people out there but a lot of them feel that they're operating in, as it were, a political headwind. And particularly that's been true for the past 15, 20 years, that the culture of testing and standardization has made life very difficult for people in schools. And there's done very little to improve what's been going on in schools either. So there's that. And, and also, I think what people feel in a curious way is that hearing other people say these things on a public platform gives them permission to make changes. And I think that's very important because... I'm convinced, as you know, that there, there is a need for profound change and, and a lot of what goes on in education. And I never say that in criticism of teachers or of, of, of school principals or even of superintendents. There's something in the culture of, or at least the political culture of education, the pressure on the system that gets in the way of what people feel they most urgently need to do in schools and you know, making them more humane and more personal places. And my argument in that is that, that there's really a lot more room for innovation often than people suspect there is in schools. A lot of what goes on isn't required by a law. It's more a function of habit and, and tradition and routine than anything else. So there is a lot of room for innovation. And I, I know because people tell me that they feel encouraged to make changes sometimes because of the, the sorts of things that I know that people are saying are possible. You know, Sir Ken, when I, I pose this question, I'm going to pose it to you as well. But first, I, I'm going to go ahead and 
uh, give the ending away <laughs> before the close of the movie. Uh, I asked Sugata what TED Talk um, remains to be told or, or presented that has yet to be um, given the platform of a TED Talk. And he paused and he said, I'm not pausing because I don't know the answer. I'm pausing because I'm not sure how I can communicate this, understanding the gravity of what I'm about to say. And he went on to say that he believes the next TED Talk should be, do we even need an education now? And do you mean an education system? An education in general. In essence, that it was started uh, as a way because we were disconnected uh, as individuals. The only way we had, uh, you know, our ability was to, uh, you know, basically read books and get connected through the written word in that way. But we were not a connected society uh, the way we are now. And because the system is so fraught with, um, let's just say, challenges, to be kindly, <laughs> uh, to be kind in that regard, that do we need... Uh, a formal education system as it stands today? And is it okay to question that, that very thing? Well, Sagata has shown uh, through his work that not just kids, you know, but people in general are perfectly capable of organizing their own learning, that people are natural learners. And left to their own devices, it's extraordinary what, what even very young kids will figure out. I mean, I, I was writing about this recently that I'm, I'm, at the moment I'm working on a book on education for parents because I, you know, I'm often asked by parents what, uh, you know, what the best thing is they should be doing for their kids in, in respect of education. And there are three terms which are often used interchangeably, which it's worth just separating out. One of them is learning, the other is education, the other is school. And learning is a very natural process. We demonstrate that all the time as human beings, we have tremendous appetite for learning. And you know, very young children are born with a rapacious appetite to discover the world around them. Um, learning is you know, it's the process of acquiring new skills, knowledge, and understanding. And we don't need schools for people to do that. We, can, we learn in all sorts of ways on our own and in collaboration with other people. Um, but I'm always keen to say this, that although learning is natural, much of what we do learn is cultural and it's a very social process for the most part. Even when we're learning on our own, we're often learning from the people around us and, you know, and the ideas that we've accumulated and the materials that have, have aggregated around you know, our adventure as a species in, in coming to know ourselves in the world. Education is, I mean, one way of defining it, as I do, is that it's it's an organized program of learning. And of course, people can organize their own programs of learning. It's what being self-educated means. Uh, but we have developed these systems over a long time, uh, national systems education, on the basis that there are some things that collectively we want successive generations to learn, things that are important to us culturally or economically. And part of my case has been that the systems that we have now were developed in other times for other purposes and in many ways that the systems themselves in their structures and ways of working are anachronistic and also obstructive to the realization of the talents and abilities that many people have and the competencies they need to acquire these days. Um, school, I think of in, in a more narrow sense, is, uh, but an important sense, the school is, is a community of learners because we do learn with and from each other. And that's all a school is. It's a community of people who come together to learn with and from each other. 
And I, I was asked recently if I thought that schools you know, still had a role, if they were still the answer. And I, and I do. I, I do think that schools are important. In that sense, the school is being a community of learners who come together to learn with and from each other. The thing is, we've come to associate schools with particular types of institutions which have developed over the past couple of hundred years. You know, schools as places where, you know, there are separate classes, different age groups, bells and whistles and uh, schedules and timetables and exams and tests. None of those things are necessary to the conception of a school. And there are multiple examples in alternative school movements, in democratic school movements, in going way back before Summerhill and, and schools like that, which have shown that schools can be much more self-organized by the people in them. I do see a place for schools. In fact, Sagata does too, because the, the school in the cloud is still a school and, and the kids that gather around the computers in the wall uh, are self-organizing groups of learners. Uh, they are schools, effectively. I think there's much more room now to rethink how schools function, how they work, how people do organize their own learning, and a desperate need to rethink the, the very basic assumptions on which mass systems of public education have operated for a very long time. I don't think we're quite yet at the point where we can, uh, in the interests of kids themselves, simply say we can get rid of, of any form of formal structure for schooling. I mean, that may be a long-term evolution of, of the way we approach learning and the, the tools that we now have available to us. I don't think we're quite there yet, but it's certainly important we should rethink the way schools currently operate and the way these systems have evolved and look at their strengths and weaknesses. They're not without strengths, of course not, and there are wonderful schools all over the place. Um, but the dominant, the dominant systems that are, are, for the most part, perpetuated through uh, public policies for education tend to perpetuate practices which are unhelpful for most kids in the way they want to learn, or certainly in, in helping them discover what their real uh, personal individual talents and abilities are. And, and would you not uh, agree that a lot of those policies are, are driven by perception and keeping, let's talk, you know, parents from basically feeling like they can be connected through the physical walls of a school. I mean, I, I would imagine that if we're going to realize some of the vision, visionary statements and thoughts that you have written and spoken about, we have to do a better job of engaging and communicating with parents and caregivers in a way that brings them into the process in a more active way so that we're not just relying on the schooling practices of when you and I went to school, but of what can be in the future. And I know that you have, you have mentioned um, and, and talked about groups like FreshGrade out of Canada that are now driving a, a lot of conversation about you know, transparent learning. Is that the wave that you see so that we can actively engage and, in, in an essence, market a new experience of education? Well, yes. The, the, the book I'm writing, I say, at the moment is, is addressed to parents. Because clearly parents are deeply invested in how their kids are educated and in what they expect they get from it. Very often, in my experience anyway, uh, parents uh, tend to think that the education that they had is what their own children now need. Uh, they sometimes collude in the pressures on kids in schools, you know, particularly testing exams because they can't see the alternative. They think, well, we're going to have to play this game and go along with it. And sometimes they think it's the teachers or the school's fault that there are such pressures on kids. And often, of course, educators themselves in schools uh, regret and resent the way that education has become um, so reduced by the pressures of testing. So I do think we need a better conversation between parents and 
schools in planning how the future of education can evolve. And, and it's not a new idea, by the way. I mean, in, in the 70s and 60s, 70s, 1780s, where I, when I was uh, first getting involved in education in the UK, there were wonderful community schools there. I mean, they're called community schools. They, they weren't just places where the kids were sent. They were places where adults learnt alongside the, their children, where people came in from the community with a whole range of different skills and contributions, where the, you know, the boundaries between the school and the surrounding neighbourhood were much more permeable than they often are uh, in, in many schools still. So, yes, I'm, I'm sure that's true. We need to engage parents much more productively in thinking about how schools can evolve, because the irony is that, that they, although they often... Um, buy into the system as it is because they don't see what the alternative can be. They're, they're dissatisfied. They can feel the pressure on their own kids. And there's, a, there's so much evidence around now that children are being uh, caused all sorts of unusual stresses and strains by the pressure of schools. And not just by that. You know, the, the, the cultural um, context in which kids are learning these days, the, the pressure through social media and so on, is, is creating all sorts of... Um, and kind of historically unprecedented pressures on our kids. I mean, many more kids now are suffering from stress and anxiety. They're on uh, antidepressants. Uh, they're, you know, they're suffering from bullying, not just in, in person, but online. I don't say it's all, it's not clear, it's not all bleak and, and, and awful, but there are real... Um, there are realities. Uh, stresses and strains out there, you know, which, which do have to be dealt with. I mean, education should be part of the solution to these things. And, and too often, because of public policies of testing and standardization, it's become part of the problem. Can we do a better job, sir? Can I think that we continue to rotate the populations in, whether it's we looked at the student population and we said, OK, girls are not we're not focusing on the talents and strengths of, of young girls in, in the math and sciences. So we start to do that. And, we, and in, you know, in doing that, then we sort of walk away from maybe needs of boys. So it seems like it's always a, you know, either or. Uh, and we do the same thing with the professionals that are serving education. Right. So it's we don't want teachers to feel as if they're in a one room schoolhouse. So we try to figure that out and, and address some of those those issues um, and provide inspiration and community. And if you look, if you continue to expand that out a little bit, you know, I just spent some time with a number of superintendents at their national conference, um, you know, down in New Orleans. And I, I cannot tell you, Sir Ken, how many of them talked about not only the loneliness of the position, but also the the strain on them. I mean, we just saw one of the most publicly uh, well-known superintendents, Dallas Dance in Baltimore, just uh, put in his, um, you know, his resignation, one of the largest districts in the U.S., uh, talking about 18-hour days for five years straight is just not something that's sustainable for a human being and one that, that uh, values his own family life in that regard. And so can we do a better job systematically of looking at education without the fear that we are going to disres disrespect one group or slight a group and understand that, look, if we're going to change the system, we have to look, we have to sort of uncover and, and, and move the rocks all over the place to understand what, what is really in front of us. Well, there's no question I think of that. I, I was uh, in Pennsylvania uh, earlier in the week, and I was, I was giving a talk at Lehigh University, and I was speaking beforehand with a school principal who's been in education for 35 years, and she's retiring early because she said she just can't take it anymore. And, and I said, well, what is it you can't take? So well, it's not the students. I mean, it, it's the external pressures uh, of accountability, uh, of testing, 
And I said, are, there, are, are these easing or getting worse? She said, in my experience, they're, they're getting worse. Um, now, you know, people have different experience according to where they are in the system, but there's no doubt about it. If you look at the turnover rates among school principals, among teachers, the non-graduation rates among kids, the burnout rates among superintendents, there's something deeply wrong in the way the system currently functions. I mean, clearly there are, there are differences in, as you travel around the country and, you know, there are, um, you know, districts which are trying to do things differently. And, and that's my point, that these things can be done differently, but we need to, uh, we need to take what are often, at the moment, more isolated innovations and get them into the mainstream culture of education. The thing is, as well, that this isn't, a lot of these strains and stresses aren't unique to the education system. Uh, it, it's partly to do with the increasing bureaucracy that we see in all areas of public and professional life these days and the pressures of short-termism and of the particular form of account that accountability tends to take. I mean, one of the interesting things that I have been asked to do in you know, my own work is talk to people outside of education. I speak a lot to corporate groups these days and also to professional groups in other fields. I spoke a while ago, a year or two ago, at the annual conference of the uh, National Association of Pathologists. And <laughs> Well, of course you did, I, right? <laughs> of course I did, yeah, of course. <laughs> it, was, it was a fantastic event. It was the U.S. and Canadian Association of Pathologists. And I did explain to them, no, I don't know anything about pathology. And they said, no, it isn't that. But they'd, they'd watched all my TED Talks, the, the senior team there, and they had they invited me to give a talk at the centennial dinner. And the, the background to it was that they felt that in their profession, the forms of accountability and of extreme specialization that are being encouraged by partly by the changes in the, the field itself mean that a lot of the professional discretion of, of individual pathologists has been eroded over the years and they're under intense pressure to become accountable in ways they don't feel help them do the job better. And, you know, they said there was a time when a, a professional pathologist in the hospital, you know, they don't just do autopsies. Obviously, they're, they're doing all kinds of biological um, tests and evaluations. I mean, pretty much any sample you give in a hospital ends up, you know, passing through a pathology lab, obviously. But they said they used to be able to do they were, had the competence to sign off on, on all sorts of samples. And nowadays, they're becoming more and more specialized. And accountability is cramping the innovation and creativity that they feel should be driving the field forward and also the satisfaction they get from the work. Um, incidentally, it's worth noting, I said at the time, that often when you give these talks at events, as you know, the chairman or the association may give you a gift of some sort. And on this case, the chairman offered me a free autopsy. Which I thought was lovely. You know, people give what they can, don't they? But, the, but I also spoke at the NSA, the, um, I think it's the NSA, the American Spine Association. Again, this was a, this was a meeting of 3,000 neurosurgeons and related professionals. And they were saying there that, that I was asked to give the president's lecture there, and I was very pleased to do it. But again, not because I have a specialism in that field, but they were saying that they felt that their practices were becoming dehumanized. And I asked them what they meant by that. And they said that in the field of um, uh, you know, neur neural surgery and neuroscience, that many of the conditions that people suffer from for which they may have been 
proposed for surgery, many of them are uh, can be relieved or remediated by uh, the attitude of the patients themselves. And you have, as a doctor or a surgeon, they said, you really do need to get to know the patient to determine what the best course of treatment might be because there's a very subjective dimension to many of the disorders that people are suffering from that you know, are referred to neurosurgeons. And they said the thing is that you know, there's a time when doctors would spend a lot of time with the patient getting to know them. And they they've discovered that, of course, that is a good thing to do. It's an important thing to do. These are real people, but increasingly they find that they, they are sitting around computer terminals with you know, groups of young doctors, not meeting the patient, but looking at data and printout. And then they only really get to meet the patient once they've sorted out what the treatment's going to be. And they say, we feel this is back to front, that there's a very human dimension here to medical treatment, which is being um, eroded in the, uh, the, because the, the way the, um, profession is being driven more and more by data. And if there isn't, I'm just saying is that, that other professions feel this too. It's not something that's uniquely being visited on the education profession. So are you saying that we're all, on the are we all coming closer to becoming Watson, the computer? I, I, think, I think we have to reaffirm the human nature of these professions, that education is a human process. We're dealing with people, uh, real living people with biographies and circumstances and hopes and aspirations. And we know that, that if you treat, you treat teachers as the professionals they are with the vocation that many of them have, and if they're able then to connect to students as living human beings who live in real communities, who have actual circumstances, then things start to change and improve in, in almost every way. That's what personalizing education means. It seems to me such an extraordinary um, the fact that we we have to talk about personalized education as if it could be something else. You know, it, it, it is about people. And it's only when we forget that or when policymakers forget that and start to treat it as some sort of industrial process that's, that's focused on output and league tables and data points. I'm not saying data is not important. Of course it is. I mean, it is in medicine that if, if I'm going for a course of treatment, I want the doctor to give me, you know, to, to know what's happening and to have the data there in front of them. But that shouldn't be the prescription. That's the diagnosis. And how you then use the data is where professional discretion comes in. And in schools, the whole process, particularly in the States, has become very data-driven, very test-driven. And it's data of a certain sort that's being uh, secured. And, and people's jobs are being made to hinge on the outcomes of these processes they don't believe in and know aren't appropriate to the education of our children. So, yeah, I mean, I do see the need for, make, for ensuring that everyone has access to a broad, balanced, and properly humane form of education. And you know, my campaign, and not mine alone by any means, a lot of people are arguing for the same thing uh, against uh, a system that has become, over time, uh, over-standardized and depersonalized. And it doesn't mean we don't need any sort of system, but we need a better one than we are typically being able to provide just now. Let's close with this, Sir Ken. What is next? Uh, I would imagine people look to you in that regard. I'm sure that, that sometimes is a heavy, heavier burden than, than need be. But, you know, I'm seeing things that I, I'm encouraged by, and I think that whether they are intending or not, are good motivators because they're engaging the student where they are in the day and time that we live in. Uh, one example would be sustainability and education around that, design thinking, 
um, things that we know the younger population are interested in. And I think that just as a simple course of even business, I mean, if you can interact with people at, at the level and the interest that they're, they're really in, uh, now you've got an audience and that that can then propel different experiences and ideas so that hopefully that they will then maybe put that back into education uh, when you and I are long gone. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I don't know what you've heard, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> My autopsy is not covered, Sir Ken. So I don't... <laughs> I've got a credit for one if you need it. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the thing is that uh, the, um, the system isn't static, I mean, the, the education system. I mean, there are, there are clearly national differences in the way countries around the world are are tackling similar issues. Uh, the sort of education system we have are deeply embedded in the overall culture of our communities. And insofar as cultures vary still around the world, and they do, there are different manifestations of how education systems operate. But there's a lot of change happening already. And that, that's part of my optimism out of this, that the, the the system is naturally being changed, partly by the impact of technology on education itself. Um, I was reading your piece in Forbes about the ways in which TED now has become a, a, a very significant source of ideas, material inspiration within education. Uh, I think that's, in itself, that's a very important shift. We've only, only really scratched the surface of how the tools and technologies that we have available to us now, uh, you know, through, not, I mean, I'm just talking about iPads and, and laptops and, and those things, but digital technology is moving at such a pace. We've only really begun to, say, scratch the surface of how it can help to personalize uh, the, both teaching and learning and can deepen and enrich the curriculum and can give us more sensitive forms of assessment. So, you know, it is perfectly possible now for kids in schools to have their own daily schedules. That was never possible when I was at school. It was beyond the confidence of anybody, you know, with a, you know, a pencil and, and an eraser to re redo the schedule every day for everybody. But now we can begin <laughs> to think about those things. Uh, and there is a big appetite for change. I meet wonderful people all the time as I travel around and, and, and work with school systems and individuals and, and parents too, as we've seen in their campaigns against standardized testing in America are very keen to see changes. Kids themselves are pushing for changes in the education system. It's a slow process, but it's not a static system. That, that's the point. And it's also tied up with all kinds of other global shifts. People are beginning to understand more clearly, at least in larger numbers, I hope, about the need to take care of the physical environment, that a lot of our agricultural processes, our manufacturing processes, um, are systems in cities are not sustainable and they they don't create the right conditions for human life to flourish alongside the rest of life on earth people i think in more and more numbers are beginning to understand that and beginning to press for it um you see it in the way that people are changing their eating habits you see the way in which i mean not not everywhere but it but it's happening um and i think people are pulling back and getting uh, beginning to see the need for a greater uh, reciprocity between different cultures and ways of living. And it's desperately important that we should do that. I'm involved with a movement called the Circular Economy that was established by Dame Ellen MacArthur, which is related in many ways to the sorts of ideas that are being promoted through conscious capitalism. And 
you know, that both of these movements are arguing for forms of economic activity which are inherently sustainable by design, not not uh, subsequently, uh, not being supported by some some later attempt to recycle things that were not not intended to be. There are ways of living harmoniously with the planet and with each other, which many people are beginning to think very seriously about. And education is a big piece of it. It's why I say in creative schools, you know, I quote the H.G. Wells comment that civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And, and there's, there's some truth in that. So it's important to see education as well as part of other global movements towards sustainability and more harmonious conditions for people to live and work together. Um, it's not separate, but it's why I push so hard against the, the dominant political models that see education as a uh, in a very narrow as a very narrow form of um, uh, of part of a supply chain for for the just for our particular forms of economic activity at the moment. It's a much bigger issue than that, and it, it manifests itself in the way that people behave day to day in schools and and you know in in their communities. But there's a larger context in which we have to frame it. But the change, it's why I subtitled the book, you know, Revolutionize Education on the Ground Up. We have to work both ends. We do have to persuade our policymakers that there should be a different climate in education. And we have to encourage and empower the people doing the work, that they're part of a bigger change and that there is room for innovation and that they're operating on the right principles when they, they look at other options. Well, in an industry and in a world where we're looking for leadership and guidance, you remain a North Star in education for so many people at different levels and uh, continued success, Sir Ken. Uh, glad to know that you've got the end already prepared for and covered. I'm sure you, <laughs> your family's happy about that. And uh, I look forward to catching up well, with you again soon. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Rod.